morning. A series that we're starting this morning is called Galatians, the True Gospel. The True Gospel. We're going to be looking at Galatians, the book of Galatians, over the next couple of months. And we're going to be systematically going through it. But today I wanted to kind of give you an overview and a background on the book of Galatians. How many of you have ever flown into a city that you were familiar with? Like maybe you went on vacation, flew back into Rochester or Buffalo or something like that. And when you fly in, it's like you see it from a different perspective than you've seen it before. Like you've looked at it on a map and you've driven around the highways and all that, but when you see it from that perspective, from a bird's eye view, you can kind of see how it's laid out and it all kind of makes a little bit more sense to you. Or the places that don't make it much sense, now you know why they don't make much sense. So today we're going to look at Galatians from that perspective. I want you to be able to understand the background of it, understand what happened leading up to the book of Galatians, and then we're going to look over the whole book of Galatians this morning so that as week by week we go through individual verses, you can understand the context of the whole scripture, okay? So Galatians is a letter written by Paul, and Galatia is a region that today is where like modern Turkey would be. So it's a, an area of the world, and Paul is writing this letter to these people there. Paul visited Galatia on his first and second missionary journeys. He converted many people to Christ when he visited Galatia, and he planted a number of churches in the region. Then later on, he writes this letter, very similar to many of the other letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. But this one is a little bit different. It's a little bit different in a couple of ways. I want to explain to you how it's different than the other letters that Paul wrote. The first way that it's different is it's written to multiple churches. So when Paul went to Galatia, he planted a number of churches in Galatia. He raised up leaders and he put them in place and organized these churches in Galatia. And so he's writing to all of the churches of Galatia. It'd be kind of like if someone wrote a letter to the Church of New York State. Now, there's a bunch of churches in New York State, but if there was a letter written to the Church of New York State, it would be a letter written to all of the churches. So it's kind of like that. It's a letter written to all these churches in Galatia. The other way that this letter that Paul wrote is different is it's different in cadence and it's different in tone. In many of Paul's letters, maybe you've, maybe you've uh, received correspondence regularly from somebody, maybe a letter or an email, or text messages, and you kind of get used to how that correspondence feels, and then all of a sudden, if, if they sent you something that was totally different, you'd be like, okay, this is a little bit different than my normal correspondence. So this letter that Paul writes to Galatia feels completely different than every of the other letters that he writes. Normally, Paul starts off his letters with a greeting of grace and peace. He gives praise to the Lord. And he encourages the people that he's writing to. Maybe he gives a specific prayer for the congregation that he's writing to. But none of that is present in the book of Galatians. None of that happens in the beginning of the letter like it does in all of the other letters that, Paul's write, that Paul writes. This specific letter is written to address a problem. It's a problem that's affecting Paul's relationship with the people in the area of Galatia. So these people in, in Galatia started becoming visited by these people that Paul calls Judaizers. And these Judaizers believe in Jesus, 
and they believe that you, can, you have to give your life to Jesus and that Jesus should be your Lord and Savior, but it had to look like Judaism, it had to smell like Judaism, and it had to feel like Judaism. They taught that in order to be in a right place with God, you had to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you also had to keep the Jewish laws, the feasts, the regulations, and the traditions. It was like receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and convert to Judaism. So that's what these Judaizers were trying to do. Now, Paul saw this as strange and it angered him. What happened was the church in Galatia started mixing this message of Judaism with the gospel that they had received from Paul. One writer that was writing about this said that if Paul was delivering this message to the Galatian church, but it wasn't in the form of a letter, let's say all the Galatian churches came together for a big conference, Paul would have come, he would have kicked the door of the church down, he would have went up front, he would have stopped worship immediately, he wouldn't have needed a microphone, he would have been screaming so loudly that people would have been covering their ears. That's how intense Paul is in this letter. It's completely different than every other letter that he wrote. That he wrote. The Judaizers believe that faith in Jesus alone does not save us. They believe that faith in Jesus plus the Jewish traditions is what brings salvation. And anytime you add something to the pure gospel, it's no longer good news. And Paul looks at this message that the, the Galatian church has been receiving, and he sees it as bad news. The Judaizers are different from Paul. See, Paul's ministry was primary, primarily to Gentiles. It was primarily not to the Jewish people. It was to Gentiles. So Paul would be going to areas that oftentimes had never heard the message of the gospel before. These people weren't familiar with Jewish laws or traditions, and he would go, some of them had never even heard the name of Jesus before. And he would go to them and he would explain how the, how the law worked. Paul was super familiar with the law and how it was impossible for us to fill the law in ourselves. And that Jesus came to fill, fulfill the law so that we didn't have to. And Paul would go bring this message to people. It was like he was plowing virgin soil. And he would lead people to Christ and he would build up churches in an, in an area and then he would move on to a new area. And Paul looked at these Judaizers as being different than him. He looked at them as parasites. These Judaizers couldn't go into an area and plow their own virgin soil and try and convert people on their own. They went and they rode on the back of Paul. They went into the areas where Paul had already toiled and worked and plowed and, and led people to Christ. And then they came in and they said, Paul got so much right but let me show you what he got wrong. The Judaizers weren't trying to win people to Christ. They were trying to wean people from Paul. And Paul was not happy about it. Paul is furious about it, to be truthful with you. This wasn't actually the first time that Paul ran into these Judaizers. The first time that Paul ran into these Judaizers is back in Acts 15. Now remember last year we went through the book of Acts, and it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but really the book of Acts is mostly about two apostles. The first half is about Peter, and the second half is about Paul. So after Paul's conversion, 
he's going around sharing the message of the gospel, preaching and teaching. And then in Acts 15, Paul, for the first time, runs into these Judaizers. So Paul runs into these guys, and him and Barnabas are teaching and preaching. And these guys come up, and they start coming around these people that Paul and Barnabas have led to the Lord. And they say, this is so great that you guys have given your life to the Lord. Now it's time for you to get circumcised, and now it's time for you guys to convert to Judaism. And Paul's like, yeah, about that. Like, let's talk about that. That's not going to happen on my watch. That's not what we're doing here. And so there's this first interaction with these Judaizers, and it leads to the first council that ever happened. Maybe some of you have heard of these councils that happen throughout church history, and out of these councils oftentimes comes these creeds. And they start off usually with, we believe, and then they hammer down on what we actually believe. And these councils are church leaders that are coming together to make decisions on important issues where there's disagreement. So this is the first council that happens with the leadership of the church. At this time, James is, for all intents and purposes, the leader of the church. James, who was Jesus' brother. So James is pastoring a prominent church in Jerusalem. That church is set up and established, and it has leadership and elders in place. And the apostles are out teaching, and they run into these Judaizers, and James says, all right, Let's get everybody together. We got to figure out what to do. Like, we have a problem here. We got to figure out what we're going to do about this. So he gathers together the leadership of the church and they meet together in Jerusalem. This is all kind of laid out in Acts uh, 15. So they meet together in Jerusalem, and there's two primary things that they have to make a decision on in these meetings. The first is should these Gentiles that want to follow Jesus? be forced to become circumcised. That's the first matter at hand. The Judaizers are claiming that they have to be circumcised. And the second is, should these Gentiles that want to follow Jesus have to follow the Jewish law? So that's the, the second decision that they have to make. And it, this happens in Acts 15. And when you put together the information in Acts 15 and the information in the book of Galatians, we find out there's actually four meetings that take place at this council. The first is a public meeting. This is in Acts 15.4. This is where everybody publicly is talking about this issue and everybody's adding their two cents and talking about their opinion and their perspective. The second is a private meeting, and Paul refers to this in Galatians 2.2. This is a private meeting with just the apostles and the elders of the church that uh, James was pastoring. They meet together to talk about it, and Paul says, I debated this with you privately. And then there's a public debate, which is the third meeting, and this is uh, Acts 15.5 and Galatians 2, verses 3 to 5, where th this matter is debated publicly in front of a large number of people where everyone can see what's going on and everyone can see the different opinions and perspectives on the matter. And then the council session in which the issue is resolved is the fourth meeting, and this is Acts 15. Uh, verses 6 through 29. So in Acts 15, in, in the end there, in verse 24 through 29, what we see is they make a decision, and I love the decision that they make, but I also love how they make this decision. And the way that they make this decision has actually been super, super, super helpful to me in my life, 
when I'm making difficult decisions. Maybe my wife and I are trying to make a decision on something and she feels differently than I do about it. Or maybe we have a board meeting and our board is split and half of our board thinks we should do this and half of the board thinks we should do that. The principle that they use here is the main principle that I use to make a decision in my life when I'm with a group of people and we don't all agree. This is in Acts 15 verses uh, 28. It said, They said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we not burden the Gentiles with these requirements. So how many have ever had to make a hard decision? Maybe a husband and, and wife feel differently, or maybe you and a boss are in disagreement, or maybe some group of people you're working with. And I love how they make this decision. The way that they make this decision is, first of all, they make it in the context of a group of people that are walking in wisdom. There's a group of people that are wise. There's also a group of people that have submitted themselves to the Lord and to the Holy Spirit. So they've surrendered their lives to God. They're living together. They have the same principles that they're living their life by. And then they were submitted to the Holy Spirit. In the beginning of the book of Acts, this group of people is filled with the Holy Spirit. So they're making this hard decision, and they, the way that they made it was they listened to each other, they heard each other, they prayed together, and in the end they decided this is what seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And I love that. When, when I'm in a hard situation where I don't know what to do, this is what we do. We talk it through, we hear each other, we pray it through, and then we come to a decision of what seems best to us and to the Holy Spirit. This is huge. The apostles came to the decision that salvation is by grace alone through faith. And you will see Paul through all of his letters, through all of his writings. This becomes one of Paul's favorite phrases that he uses, one of his favorite statements that he makes. We don't have to keep the Jewish laws or traditions in order to be saved. This is the first time that Paul runs into these Judaizers and he's dealing with them again in Galatia, poisoning the message of the gospel. Galatians is considered by some to be like a mini book of Romans. It takes the central themes that are laid out in depth in the book of Romans, and it kind of covers all of those themes through six chapters. The word law appears 32 times in the book of Galatians, and faith appears 21 times. And largely, Paul is writing about the difference in relying on the law for, to earn our salvation versus justification through faith in Jesus. That's the, the main thing that Paul is writing to differentiate between. The book of Galatians can easily be broken up into three sections that are two chapters each. The first two chapters, chapter 1 and 2, are personal. This is where Paul is laying out his position as an apostle sent by Jesus to be able to speak into this specific situation that they're dealing with. Chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal. Some people consider chapter 3 and 4 of Galatians to be the book of Romans wrapped up into two chapters. This is where Paul is laying out the doctrine of our faith like line upon line, just hammering home the truth of the gospel. And then chapters 5 and 6 are personal. Chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians are actually very similar to the book of James. It's like he lays out the doctrine over two chapters, and then he says, okay, based on that doctrine that I just laid out for you, how are we supposed to live? Like, what's the outworking of that in our life supposed to be? 
I'm going to kind of breeze through the whole book this morning and pull out a few scriptures that capture each of those sections to help you understand an overview of everything that's happening in the book of Galatians so that we di- when we dive into the specific chapters, you can understand where it's all headed. So first, Galatians 1.1, this is where Paul starts the letter. It says, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So this is Paul, like, normally this is where Paul is starting with the pleasantries. Like, hey everyone, it's so great to see you, everything is good. And right away Paul is like, nope, I am sent by God, this is why I'm sent. I'm not just some random dude, I was sent by Jesus and the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul is laying out his credentials for why he can speak into this situation right from the bat. Move down to verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Now, Paul was astonished. This was surprising to him. And it's surprising to me because these Galatians, these churches were formed by Paul. Paul was the best Bible teacher that walked on the earth at the time, probably the best Bible teacher that ever walked on the face of the earth. And he taught them the scriptures. He established these churches. He led them to Christ himself. And he's looking at them going, how did this happen so quickly? What I want us to see there is that it doesn't take much outside influence It doesn't take very long to embrace a false gospel, to embrace a prosperity gospel, to embrace a sloppy gospel. It doesn't take long to stray from the truth and embrace a gospel that will make you comfortable in the place that you're at. We're always just one generation away from losing the pure gospel. So we need to know the message of the gospel And we need to propagate the gospel. We need to teach the gospel in our homes. We need to share the true, undefiled gospel with everyone that we can. Paul goes on in in verse 7. He says, Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. This word pervert that Paul uses refers to moving backwards. He's saying you're moving backwards away from the gospel of grace and moving towards the law, towards the gospel of works. Paul is seeing these churches move from relationship with Jesus and the daily dependency upon Jesus that he taught them to moving towards a salvation of works, moving towards, a, 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 moving towards religion and rules, and moving away from relationship. He sees the church walking out of freedom and walking into bondage, and he's not happy about it. You might look at that and you might say, well, that was back then and this is now, and I'm pretty sure there's not any Judaizers in Warsaw, so like, what, how does this affect us? Like, what's, what's the big deal? You know, I think that we are tempted in the same way that the Galatian church was to move out of a a daily relationship with Jesus and to go through the motions. To show up at church, to do the religious things that the people around us do, 
but not be in a place of daily dependency on Jesus, a daily relationship with him where we live with him and walk with him moment by moment. In verse 8 he says, but even if we, and when he says we, he means me or the other apostles, even if we apostles or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Now remember, in most letters that Paul writes, he's still running around giving everyone high fives by verse 8. Like he's high five and everyone like, you guys are doing great. This is awesome. You guys are following Christ and your churches are established. This is so great. But here, we're eight verses in and Paul is dropping the hammer, confronting the false gospel and saying we have to embrace the true gospel and the true gospel alone. So when he says here, he says, even if, even if I, even if we, even if me or one of the other apostles, and if he should put quotes here, he said, or some angel show up to preach another gospel, he says, let them be under God's curse. What Paul's really saying, if I were to translate this into words that would make a little more sense to us today, he says, if anyone ever brings a gospel other than that which you received, even if it's some angel, to hell with them. Paul couldn't be more strong in this wording, saying there's one true gospel, and when you add anything to it, it's no longer the good news. We have to remove that which these Judaizers have tried to add to the gospel. And if you listen to that and look at that, you might be thinking like, man, Paul, like, I like Ephesians a little better. Like, can't you like chill out a little bit and encourage us a little bit? But where Paul's at, I want you to pretend for a second that you sat down with a doctor and the doctor gave you the horrible news that you have cancer. I would imagine that probably most of you, if I was in that place, I would want that doctor to be as aggressive as possible to get the cancer out of my body yesterday. Like, if you've got to cut me open, if you've got to take something out of me, if you've got to give me drugs, whatever you've got to do, like, get that out of me now. That's exactly what Paul's doing, is he's looking at the cancer that's been trying to be added to the message of the gospel, and he comes in with a sword, and he says, this stuff has to go now. It has to get out. In the rest of chapter 1, he talks about his personal background in Judaism and legalism and how he came to a place of embracing the gospel to walk in, in the freedom that Christ purchased for him. He talks about his background. If you don't remember Paul's background, Paul himself was a Pharisee. He spent his life studying the law and trying to live by the law. Not only was he a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee who was trained by Gamaliel, who was said to be the best teacher, the best Pharisee there was. <clears throat> and Gamaliel said that Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. In other words, he knows the law better than anyone. So Paul kind of explains that background that he has and how trying to live out the law is going to lead to death. And it's only in relationship with Jesus that we can find life. Then in chapter 2, he talks about his first run-in with these Judaizers in Antioch when these Jewish guys showed up and said that the Gentiles that were giving these, their life to Jesus had to be circumcised 
and had to follow the Jewish laws if they really wanted to be followers of Christ. And then speaking about those specific Judaizers that he ran into the first time, in verse 5 he says this, To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue in you. So what Paul is saying is, you can't give this false gospel even an hour in your life. You can't give it even an inch. I didn't give it an, an hour in my life because I wanted the pure gospel to become the gospel for you. I wanted to be able to teach you it. So if you want to be able to share the gospel with others, you can't even give it an hour in your life. Then he moves on to chapter 3, which is the second section of the book. And this section he focuses on doctrine. And the verse starts off in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians. Paul does not use this language anywhere else in the Bible. He doesn't talk like this. Like, if you're used to getting encouraging and happy text messages from your friend, and all of a sudden your friend is calling you a fool, like, you know something's going on. You know this is going to be a different kind of message. And this is exactly what's happening here with Paul and the Galatians. Another translation translated the words that Paul used to say this, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Paul is angry, and he is writing this letter to address the Judaizers that have infested the body of Christ. Paul is bringing correction, and he's coming in like a shepherd with a cane, and he's not just gently pulling people. He's swinging the cane like it's a baseball bat. He is not messing around with this message. You know, I don't know exactly what it was about these specific Judaizers that was so enticing or drew people in in the way that it did. I don't know if it was their personalities or the message that they brought. I'm not exactly sure. But I actually see this kind of thing happen often today. Sometimes people will send me sermons from people or, or blogs that people wrote or something like that. And they'll say things like, I've never heard anybody preach like this before. I've never seen anybody with this kind of insight. I've never seen revelation like that before. And they'll send it to me, and they'll be super excited about what they've, what they've seen from this person that's teaching the Bible. And i got to be honest, most of the time that people send me stuff like that, I don't really want anything to do with it. If someone has some new revelation, even if it's an angel... I don't really want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Like, I'm going to preach the simple message of the gospel for the rest of my life. If you want some new revelation, you're going to have to find another church because you're not going to find it here. Because if anybody stands up here with some new revelation, I'm going to make them sit down. Because I don't believe in that nonsense. I believe that in a true, pure, simple message of the gospel, I don't need something new. I need something old. I'm going to preach what Paul preached. I'm going to preach what Peter preached. I'm going to preach what Jesus preached. I don't need some new revelation. And the truth is, neither do you. You know, maybe if we stopped our shiny object syndrome when it comes to, the, to doctrine, when it comes to the gospel, maybe we'd end up with something that's old, something that's pure, and something that's more real than anything that this world has to offer and that's what I want, is the simple message of the gospel that Jesus came to preach. I don't want anything else. I don't care how cool it is. I don't care how flashy it is. I want the word of God. 
In this second section, he focuses on doctrine. And the principle that Paul realizes that's motivating him here is if you pretend a ship is leaving England and it's coming to the United States, Paul realizes if the rudder of that ship is off by just a tenth of a degree, it misses the United States altogether. Like you end up in a completely different place with a completely different thing. And so Paul realizes that and he applies that, that thinking to the gospel and he says, I got to cut everything that anybody has added to the gospel off. Otherwise, Christianity is going to end up in a completely different place. So he comes in with a sword and he's cutting off everything so that what's left is the pure gospel. In chapter 4, Paul beautifully lays out the truth of our sonship in Christ. And I can't wait till we get to chapter 4 and I get to preach that. Such an amazing chapter. Paul talks about how God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. God became a man so that you and I could be sons of God. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus was willing to come to earth so that you and I could be adopted into the family? Like, I don't deserve to be in the family. I don't know about you. My guess is you probably don't either. But Jesus came to make a way so that you and I could be a part of the family. There was a a family that lived in a town that was like over the top with their Christmas lights. Like this town was just completely out of control with Christmas lights. Like neighbors were competing with each other and every cul-de-sac in town had a competition. And so this family, they would go and they would drive around town the week before Christmas every year and look at all the light displays and they loved it. So they were out driving around town looking at the light displays and they turned around the corner and there was a giant church there. And this church had gone to great lengths to put out a beautiful, incredible manger scene. And the road was just packed with cars. Everyone was just pulled over looking at this manger scene. And so the father pulled over and he looked and he just said, God, thank you for sending your son to the earth. And Jesus, thank you for being willing to come. And they just sat there quietly and looked at the manger scene for a while. And then the father went to put the car in park to drive away. And the son said, one second, I've got one question. And the dad said, okay, what's that? He said, why is Jesus the same size every year? Like every year is the size of a watermelon. Like does he ever grow up or does he just stay a baby forever? And the father said, oh, son, he, gr- he grows up. He becomes a man and he preaches the most dividing message in all of history. He says he's the son of God. And he says that he came to die for the sins of the world. And he says the only way back to right relationship with the Father is through him, through Jesus, the Son. And that's the message that Paul is defending here. This is what Paul came to defend, is the simple gospel. And he says, we don't need all the laws and traditions. You can't add all that stuff to it. What Jesus did is enough in itself. We don't need to add anything else to it. So then he comes to chapters 5 and 6, and this is the practical section of the book. Paul is talking about the work of grace in our life in chapter 5 and 6. Salvation by grace alone produces spiritual maturity. You know, grace is misunderstood and and it kind of gets a bad rap. And, And people think like, well, you can't just tell people that all they have to do is believe in Jesus. Like, if you tell them all they've got to do is believe in Jesus and they don't have to do anything else, 
Like, they'll go crazy. They'll just be a bunch of wild people going nuts. Like, we got to put up some borders. We got to put up some fences. We got to rein in these people. Because if we don't exercise some control, these people are going to turn into hooligans. Like, what we need is we need Christianity that looks like bumper bowling. We got to keep everything inside, nobody getting out in the gutter. So we stick up religion on the one side, and we stick up rules on the other side, and they think, okay, that is how we're going to control people and rein people in. And that is what the Judaizers were doing. They were trying to exercise legalism and rules and control and mix it with Christianity, and Paul's like, yeah, you guys don't understand grace at all. Like, that's not what grace is, even a little bit. If you understood grace, you wouldn't be so worried about rules and religion. You would understand that grace actually empowers people to do that which the law could never empower us to do. You can add all the rules you want. You can add all the laws you want to try and make your kids act better. You can add all kinds. I'm going to work my way out of this thing. I'm going to try my way out of this thing. I'm going to will myself to change. Aren't you tired from doing that? It's exhausting trying to will yourself to change. I mean, the way that Paul said it is, he's like, the stuff that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the stuff that, I'm not, that, are, that I, that I want to do, I don't do. That's, it's the exhausting work of trying to will yourself into change. And Paul comes to that and he says, grace does not make you a rebel It turns you into an apprentice who starts to look like Jesus. The law commanded you to do something that you, and it never empowered you to do that which it commanded you to do. But grace and the Holy Spirit comes to empower you to walk out that which Christ has called you to walk out. He's talking about this in Galatians 5.1 where he says, Stay steadfast, stand steadfast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So here Paul is saying, don't become entangled with a yoke of bondage. And this is what a yoke looks like. And we, and we don't really use yokes anymore too much, most of us anyways. Um, but a yoke is, is this like wooden device that's put around the neck of a couple of oxen so that they can pull in the same direction. Maybe they're going to pull a plow and flip some dirt so you could grow some vegetables, or maybe they're going to pull a wagon so you could take said vegetables into town to sell them or something like that. And Paul says you become yoked with bondage. You guys are in bondage if you end up mixing this law with the true gospel. What's interesting is this is actually the same exact language that Peter used back in Acts 15 and the same exact language that Jesus used. So in Acts 15.10, he says, Why are you trying to put on the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our fathers could bear? So this is Peter, and he's like, Y'all want to act like you guys can keep the law? Let me break this down for you. None of us could keep the law. Paul was supposed to be the best, and he says he was lying the whole time. None of us could keep the law. And our fathers who acted like they kept the law... They couldn't keep it either. So why now are you going to try and put it on the Gentiles and ask them to keep a law that none of us could keep? We were never supposed to keep the law. The law shows us that we can't keep the law ourselves. 
We need Jesus and the Holy Spirit into, inside of us to empower us to walk out all that he's called us to walk out. Jesus gets in a group of Pharisees who are these same kind of jokers, and this is what he says in Matthew 23, 4. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, who bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. Again, this yoke of bondage. So Paul says, you guys are getting entangled with the yoke of bondage. You don't want nothing to do with this. Trust me, I was a Pharisee. I know about this stuff. We got Peter, who's like, you know, we couldn't keep the law, and our fathers couldn't either. And Jesus looking at these people who are trying to put the law on people and saying, nope, it ain't going to work. I'm, I came here to fulfill this thing because nobody ever could do it on their own. In Galatians 5, 13, 14, and 15, it says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty... Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So Paul here is hammering home the idea that grace does not make us indulgent. Grace doesn't give us Liberty to see what we can get away with. Grace doesn't make us self-serving. Grace actually makes us a servant. Grace takes us and allows us to love our neighbor in a way that we only ever would have been able to love ourselves previously. Paul's saying this is what grace does. We don't need more laws. We don't need more rules. We don't need more religion. We need the work of grace in our lives. See, you have two natures. You're born with one nature. When you're born, each one of us is born as a sinner. And I know that's hard to believe when you have a, have a newborn baby and you're thinking, like, how could this baby be born a sinner? But just give it a little time. You'll find out real quick. <laughs> yep, that baby was a sinner. It, it seemed all nice, but it was definitely, definitely a sinner. No doubt about that. But then you give your life to Jesus and you're born again, we call that. And you're born with a new nature. And now the Holy Spirit comes in, a, in, in us to, to enable us and energize us to walk out all that God has called us to. And now there's a war inside of you. And some of you know all too well what I'm talking about, this war that happens inside you. Remember Paul said, I don't do what I want to do, what, I'm, what I know I'm supposed to do, and then I can't do what I want to do. It's that war inside of us where we're like, there are two worlds living inside of me and warring against each other. And Paul talks about this in verse 6, and he talks about 16 works of the flesh and nine graces of the Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about bearing fruit. And, and the main thing that I want you to see here that Paul's talking about, about bearing fruit, is Paul's talking about being connected to the vine. So no fruit tree is out there trying to will itself to bear fruit. It's not like, come on, bear fruit, push out an apple, put in this. it doesn't work that way. The only reason the apple tree is bearing fruit is because the apple is connected to the branch, which is connected to the source of life. And when Paul's looking at these people in Galatians, he's like, you can't will yourself into change. Trust me, spent my life trying it. Didn't work. I faked the funk, but that's all I was doing was faking. It wasn't real. I never willed myself into change, and you can't will yourself into change. The only way that you bear fruit is by hanging close to the trunk. All you got to do is hang in there and stay close to Jesus, and you will, the natural byproduct of that will be fruit in your life. 
You don't have to will yourself to do it. You don't have to try. And, and you know, I'm not saying you don't have any responsibility. You can't put yourself in a situation where you're going to be tempted to sin like crazy and go, well, Lord, let's test this out and see how it goes. You're probably going to do stupid, trust me. But if you just stay close to Jesus, and as the Holy Spirit enables you and empowers you to go, you know what? That thing that used to be so enticing to me, I don't, it's ugly now. I don't even want it anymore. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is changing the desires of your heart, and you're going, I don't want to live that life that I used to live. I, I want to live over here. And as you stay close to Jesus, you will find that that change will take place in your life, not because of your effort, not because you're so diligent, not because you found a new system, not because you positive affirmationed your way into it. That change is going to take place in your life because you stayed close to Jesus. Like that branch that bears fruit, you just hang in there and stay close to Jesus. And the natural byproduct of that is you're going to start to look like that Jesus that you serve. So today I wanted to give you kind of some background on the book. I wanted you to understand where Paul's coming from, why he's coming in hot and swinging a sword, so you weren't kind of like scared, like, whoa, what was that all about? I wanted you to know what's going on. And I wanted you to understand the whole book and the context of the book so that when we dive into those individual sections, you can know where this is all heading. But I want to give you guys some homework. You know, remember a few weeks ago I talked about the importance of studying the Word of God and reading the Bible. And I said, you know, it's not a speed competition, not like how many verses can I get through and how many chapters and books can I get through and yay, I did it all. But when we read the Bible, we read it slowly and we digest it and we take time. Sometimes we read over and over again. Sometimes I've read a scripture 10, 15, 20 times and then all of a sudden I saw something that the Lord was trying to teach me. So the homework that I want to give you is I want, to, I want you to read Acts 15 this week, that, that chapter that I talked about where there's those four meetings. I want you to read Acts 15, and I want you to read Galatians 1. It won't take you too long to read those two chapters. You can do it in 15 minutes probably if you are literate. So I want you to read those two chapters, and then next week I'm going to be preaching on Galatians 1. But I want you to be asking yourself a question during this whole series, while you're, while you're doing that homework and reading, while you're listening to the sermons. I want you to ask yourself this question. Where are the places I have strayed from the true gospel and embraced a false gospel? You know, it's one thing to read about the Galatian church and the way that they strayed from the gospel. And it's easy to point the finger at them. But I want you to ask yourself and ask the Lord to show you in yourself, Lord, where are the places that I've strayed from the true gospel and I've embraced a different gospel, a false gospel? Maybe a gospel that's made me more comfortable in the way that I want to live my life. Maybe a gospel that fits the life that I want to live. Maybe the gospel that makes some sin that I've kept in my life feel a little bit more comfortable. Just ask the Lord and be open in this series and say, God, you know, you had Paul confront the Galatians in this way, and I'm inviting you to come and confront me. Amen? Would you bow your heads? Lord, we uh, uh, thank you for what you're doing in this place. Lord, you, you had Paul confront the Galatians on sin in their life and the way that they had embraced the false gospel. And Lord, at the start of this series, we just invite you to confront us. Lord, we want to have a pure gospel. We want to get where you want us to go. And Lord, we know that if we're off just by a little bit, it changes everything. So we invite you to come in 
and show us the places where we've created a gospel that would be comfortable for us. Where we've taken the gospel and just kind of took pieces of it and fit it around what we wanted it to be so that we could live the life that we want. God, would you come and confront us? We invite you to come. And Lord, as, as uh, each person who's here today is reading Acts 15 and Galatians 1 this week, I just ask that you would show up. You would show up while they're reading and you would meet with them. You would minister to them. We just invite you to come. In your name we pray. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a great week.